0: Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started.
1: Shalom, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for Anti-Semitism. Why is it still around and whose fault is it? Uh, Unfortunately, very relevant topic today. Um, I also want to thank Temple Emanuel in Denver and Temple Israel in New Hampshire for co-sponsoring today's program. And it is my honor to introduce my friend Avi Posen, who will lead today's talk. Avi is the Senior Director of Israel Education, EMEA, at Unpacked for Educators, a division of Open Door Media. His focus is on content creation and training Jewish educators around the world on how to use Unpacked for Educators materials. Avi has worked as a Judaic studies teacher, Hillel director, and Jewish camp director. He holds a master's in Jewish education from Yeshiva University in New York and lives with his family in Haifa, Israel. Welcome, Avi. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Alex, thank you so much and good morning, everybody. Um, It's such a pleasure to spend the morning with people that are so devoted um, to continued learning. As Jews, we're always learners, and that never ends, and you guys are all proving that here today. Um, Today, of course, we're speaking about a topic that unfortunately continues to be relevant in every generation, and this one is no exception to the rule. Um, So what we're going to speak about today is why is anti-Semitism still around and whose fault is it? So uh, what we're going to do is the following. Um, Today's session is gonna be a little bit unique because I'm gonna speak. Um, I'm also gonna show you a couple of videos, but I also want it to be interactive. Um, So we're gonna have an opportunity at the end for for some discussion, but throughout the webinar, um, I'm gonna give you guys the opportunity within the chat um, to participate as well. So make sure you have that open and ready to go because I wanna hear from all of you as well. So we're gonna answer the two questions that I mentioned. I'm gonna share some helpful resources All of us to continue our learning on this topic. So, very briefly, you know, Alex, by the way, you're all very lucky to have Alex um, at Valley Bay Midrash, who's a very very talented, amazing person. I have the privilege of knowing her since we were uh, young kids. Um, But I, like Alex, are both from Winnipeg, Canada originally. I now live in Haifa um, and I work in the world of Israel education. And like Alex mentioned, I work at a company called Unpack. So, we are a Jewish educational media company. So, we have Um, a YouTube channel with over 200,000 subscribers. We create podcasts, um, social media content, films, with the goal of educating, engaging, and connecting young Jews to Israel and Judaism. Um, So I highly encourage you all, uh, we're gonna be watching two videos today that come from our content bank, but all of our content is accessible to all of you. And I'll speak about it a little bit later, Um, but whether it's videos on YouTube, whether it's podcasts, um, it's all accessible to all of you. And I encourage you to check check that out. So I want to start off with a couple of pictures just to get things started. Um, I want to start off with a picture of these four beautiful people. Um, according to the USC Shoah Foundation, these are the oldest living Holocaust survivor siblings in the world. And um, the man second to the left is my Zeta, is my grandfather, Zeta Saul, who's turning 99 in one month. And um, his baby sister on the left, that's my auntie Ruthie, who's um, the ripe age of 96. Um, and on the far right is my auntie Hania, auntie Anne, who is um, 100. And in the red, in the red uh, outfit there is my auntie Salcia, my auntie Sally, who just passed away two months ago, um, mm-hmm. a couple months shy of 102. So um, I-, I show this picture to, to share that, you know, in a millennia uh, history of anti-Semitism that our people have struggled through, um, one thing that's been an ongoing theme in my life is constantly hearing the stories of my family and the journey that they went through um, surviving the Nazis and the Shoah and how they had to rebuild their life and the anti-Semitism that they struggled with throughout their life. Um, I, I had the privilege back in 2013 of traveling to my Zeta, stalls, Hometown of Sanok, Poland, which is in southeast Poland, the shtetl that he um, was born in and grew up in, and uh, we had the privilege of going together. Um, he hadn't been back in seventy-three years, um, and this picture uh, we took on his on the balcony of the hotel we were staying at. Um, you can see a river behind us in that image, and that was the river that actually ended up saving his life him and his sister's life not his brother not his grandparents not his 92 cousins and aunts and uncles who were all um killed in the holocaust but he was on the right side of that river on the day where people were transported and that's what ended up saving his life and we actually ended up um you know we put on tefillin on the balcony out in public and it was an incredible experience um to show that regardless of what we've been through Um, We will continue to survive and we will continue to thrive. And that message is just as relevant today um, as it is at any time. So I want to pull up a couple of headlines. We've all been following the news. We've all been watching TV, listening to the radio, reading the papers online. I'm sure checking out social media. Um, We're living in unprecedented times, right? Um, Just six weeks ago, just, just over six weeks ago, as we all know, the worst atrocity the worst massacre to face the jewish people since the holocaust took place we've all heard that saying multiple times but it's something that we can't you know we can't put to the side right 1200 jewish people were murdered on october 7th the worst atrocity um, against jewish people on any day since the holocaust just a couple other numbers to throw your way right if we speak about um the famous Six-Day War of 1967. There were more Jews killed on October 7th than the entire Six-Day War. Uh, There were more Jews killed on October 7th than the entire First Lebanon War, which lasted three years, right? Um, The unprecedented nature of what took place that day is something that's going to be felt for generations to come. It's going to be in every textbook. There's going to be days of commemoration, just as we put into our calendar for, you know, Tisha B'Av and Yom HaShoah Yom zikaron this event was monumental in nature and it's gonna be remembered for generations to come. What's been so shocking about this event and we've all been so aware of this is that, you know, you would think after such a horrific attack on babies and children and parents and grandparents by a terrorist organization that, you know, recognized the United States by Canada, by the Western world, you would think, oh, you know what, maybe the world will see what Israel and the Jewish people are facing. Um, You know, we had maybe a day, maybe a couple days of sympathy, but we also saw these headlines that, you know, many of these headlines existed before October 7th. But shockingly, we've all seen that since October 7th, anti-Semitism has absolutely exploded, exploded. We all know that it's been there this whole time. But in many ways, the the mask has been taken off. And we see, you know, just in the U.S., anti-Semitic incidents up about 400 percent, that's A number from the FBI, right? The epidemic of hate, a new wave of anti Semitism threatens to rock an already unstable world, right? We all talk, we all know about what's going on on university campuses, on college campuses all over America, but all over the world. Just horrific sites, horrific videos and graphics and testimonials that we're all seeing, that we're all hearing every single day. Um, I wanna show you one more thing that I'm sure many of you heard of. Um, but to me, I'm still I'm still reeling from from how crazy this was. Um, just a couple of days ago, we all know who this image is of, right? Osama bin Laden. Um, a couple of days ago, on TikTok, Osama bin Laden went viral. Um, why? Because a letter that he had written back in 2002, called the Letter to America, um, started going viral different tiktokers and social media influencers started sharing videos where they read excerpts from osama bin laden's letter which in many ways as and unfortunately i went and and read read through it is very reminiscent to mein kampf which we're all aware of um and and these tiktok influencers weren't just reading it and saying wow what a horrible terrorist who killed three thousand americans on 9 11. but they were reading it and saying look He was right in a lot of ways he was right in a lot of ways and in this letter you know you can imagine the horrific things he says in this letter one of the things he says is that um, the jewish people control america and with the money and the media the 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 classic anti-semitic tropes that we've been hearing for 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 millennia um and i just want to dig into this for a second because it's not something that we can ignore i want to show you a couple of numbers we know about gen z We know that Gen Z is on social media all the time. Not only Gen Z, people of all ages are on social media all the time, but Gen Z in particular, look at some of these numbers and these are already uh, from 2021. So these numbers are already a little bit old. So I imagine the numbers are even crazier now, but this study published in 2021, stated that teens spend eight hours on their phones for entertainment purposes each day. So when it comes to social media, 95% of them are on YouTube, 67% are on TikTok. 62 on Instagram, 59% on Snapchat. Um, And these numbers are the ones that I think are really important. 54%, more than half of teens get their news from social media. And 50% of teens get their news from YouTube at least a few times a week. Why am I pointing this out? Um, Because if we're not aware already, social media, although it has some beautiful aspects to it, there's some wonderful benefits of having social media, you know, connecting people from around the world, um, the information marketplace, it can be a beautiful thing in some ways, but it's also been a disaster in a lot of ways because when so many people are spending their days, right, you can see here eight hours a day amongst teams just for entertainment purposes alone, they're spending their time in social media, which is a place that is very polarizing, where things are very black and white, very religious or secular, right wing, left wing, conservative, liberal, pro-Israel, pro-Palestinian. right? There isn't much nuance. There isn't much complexity. There isn't much diversity of perspectives or historical context that one can find within the world of social media. And we all hear about the algorithm of social media and people will fall down a rabbit hole that they see a video that they like or that they watch or that they comment on. And TikTok or Instagram says, "Ooh, OK, I'll continue to feed them videos that only show this perspective. And they continue to go down this one perspective and they don't hear other perspectives. They don't hear more context, right? They they only hear um, a certain message coming from a certain perspective. And we can see based off the previous slide, how scary that rabbit hole can get. It can lead you all the way to believing that Osama bin Laden was right um, or, or other wild perspectives. Um, based on all of this social media content, I wanna show you a couple more numbers that I'm sure some of you have seen. There's been a few studies that have come out um, over the last month. And this is very indicative of everything that I just mentioned, right? So this was a survey done on Americans. The question was, in general, in this conflict, right, we're speaking about the the war taking place right now between Israel and Hamas, do you side more with Israel or Hamas? Okay? We can see here from the pie chart, great, 84% side with Israel, 16% with an internationally recognized terrorist group, Hamas, um, that seems great. But let's look a little bit closer at the numbers here. And this is what's really scary. But if we look at 65 plus, 95% of people support Israel over Hamas. Great. It's even shocking that 5% support Hamas. But right, those are great numbers. Right? As we look through the numbers, they, they're decreasing through the different age groups. And it gets really scary. When we get to the 18 to 24-year-olds, those who are spending their time on college campuses, those who are spending their time on social media, right? Only 52% support Israel over Hamas, right? This is 2023. 52% of 18 to 24-year-olds support Israel, and 48% are supporting Hamas, okay? Horrifying data. Um, It's scary data. I think in some ways it, it's surprising. In some ways it's not surprising. Um, I want to show you one more number from this study. Do you think the Hamas killing of 1,200 Israeli civilians in Israel can be justified by the grievances of Palestinians, or is it not justified? Okay, so again, we look at the numbers, 76%, three out of four say you can't justify that. No matter what what your position is on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which of course is very complicated and it's legitimate to lean more to the left or to the right and have different opinions, that's all great. But... 76% 76% say no way that you can justify the horrific massacre and atrocity that took place on October 7th, regardless of your opinions on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yet, 24% say it can be justified. Now, if you look closer at the numbers here, again, right? if you look at 65+, 91% say no way, you cannot justify this. Um, but if we go to the 18 to 24-year-olds, 51% say that what Hamas did on October 7th can be justified by the grievance of Palestinians, okay? So I want everyone to soak in those numbers, meditate on those numbers for a moment. Um, Because again, you know, when Alex and I spoke several months ago about doing a presentation about anti-Semitism, you know, anti-Semitism is always relevant, but today this conversation is more relevant than ever. And what I'd like to do right now is I wanna show you the first video that we're gonna be watching today. this video is, is really called Why Does Anti Semitism Exist? Why is it still around? Um, it's a question that I think we should all be asking in a civilized world in 2023 when people have access to education and have access to, to different people. Um, I'm going to pass it over to Alex, who's going to play the first video Why Does Anti Semitism Exist? And obviously, everyone pay close attention because I'm going to ask you to reflect in the chat section um, immediately upon completion of the video. So, Alex, do you.
2: If you ask most Westerners today whether they oppose anti-Semitism, most would likely say yes. And yet, whenever something terrible happens in the world, it seems like it's only a matter of time before someone blames the Jews for it. No, seriously, those are all real. The problem is not just words. It's conspiracy theories that have deadly consequences, as massacres of Jews from Pittsburgh to Paris demonstrate.
3: At lunchtime today, a man armed with machine guns walked into this kosher supermarket and took more than a dozen people hostage.
2: The gunman was
3: killed, but tragically so too were four of the hostages.
2: Far from fading away, anti-Jewish prejudice seems as resilient as ever. So if we agree that anti-Semitism is bad, why is it still such a big problem? That's where this series comes in. By answering some of the biggest questions about anti-Semitism, the sort that confuse many people and keep them from seeing and confronting the hate, we'll learn together how to effectively tackle anti-Semitism, what it actually is, how to recognize it, and what to do about it. Didn't anti-Semitism go away after the Holocaust?
3: Jews will not replace us!
2: Apparently not. Yet a surprising number of people think that anti-Jewish bigotry was stamped out after the horrors of Nazi Germany. After all, didn't we make a bunch of Holocaust movies and get past this stuff? But while it's comforting to imagine that anti-Semitism largely disappeared after World War II, it's far from accurate. And if we make the mistake of reducing anti-Semitism to the Holocaust, its most extreme manifestation, we're likely to miss much of the problem today. That's because the Holocaust wasn't an anti-semitic exception, it was anti-semitism's culmination. The systematic murder of 6 million Jews across Europe didn't happen in a vacuum. It came after years of religious, scientific, cultural, and political anti-semitism. For centuries, European Jews were barred from most professions, forcibly converted to other faiths, and subjected to murderous rampages, constant expulsions, and periodic inquisitions. In other words, the mass murder of European Jewry would not have been possible without many centuries of anti-Jewish ideas and assumptions. Take the Holocaust away and you still have this massive anti-Semitic foundation underneath. In fact, we are still living with it. Put another way, just as slavery's abolition in America didn't end racism, the defeat of Nazi Germany didn't end anti-Semitism. The statistics bear this out. According to the FBI, American Jews are annually subject to the most hate crimes of any religious group, despite making up only 2% of the US population. Not only that, but since the FBI began tracking these crimes, more of them have been committed against Jews than all these groups combined. Hate crime statistics are an imperfect metric, but they give you a sense of the ugly anti-Jewish undercurrent that has always lurked beneath the surface. Recently. More people have started to notice this unsettling reality as American Jews have been subjected to a series of anti Semitic terrorist attacks and massacres. These include the mass shooting at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue in October 2018,
3: contact, contact, shot fire, shot
2: fire. the April 2019 attack on a synagogue in Poway, California, the shooting at a kosher supermarket in Jersey City, New Jersey in December 2019, Three people inside that store were killed by flying pieces of metal during the gunfire. There is no question
0: that this is a hate crime and anti-Semitism should be called out aggressively and firmly immediately for
2: what it is. And the mass stabbing of religious Jews at their Hanukkah celebration that same month by a machete-wielding assailant in Muncie, New York. Yet as bad as this is, the picture is considerably darker in Europe. In 2018, CNN surveyed European attitudes towards Jewish people. They found that more than a quarter of Europeans believe that Jews have too much influence in finance. Nearly one in four said that Jews had too much influence in wars and conflicts around the world. One in five Europeans said that Jews had too much influence in the media and almost the same number claimed that they have too much influence in politics. These conspiracy theories about vast Jewish power are particularly ludicrous when you realize that Jews constitute less than 0.2% of the entire European population. And most Europeans have never even met one. The consequences of this widespread hostility towards Jews, however, are severe. In 2013 and 2018, researchers at the European Union's Agency for Fundamental Rights asked Jews about their experiences of anti-Semitism. What they found was alarming. Nearly 40% of European Jews were afraid of publicly identifying as Jewish. Nearly half were worried about being the victim of anti-Semitic harassment in the next 12 months and one-third feared being the victim of a physical assault. And for good reason. In recent years, Jews have been the victims of brutal anti-Semitic attacks at schools and synagogues across Europe. Put together, it's easy to understand why so many of Europe's Jews still live in fear 75 years after the Holocaust, why nearly 40 percent of them say they've considered leaving because they don't feel safe, and why millions of them already have. The same is true in many non-Western countries. Jews in Arab and Muslim lands once numbered nearly a million, but now number only a few thousand, having been persecuted to the point of expulsion or flight in the last century. And anti-Jewish prejudice has persisted throughout the region, even in the absence of Jews. Why does this matter to us? Because if we only see and confront anti-Semitism when it looks like the Holocaust or is committed by obvious actors like neo-Nazis, we're likely to miss much of it which means that society will only notice the problem when it explodes into deadly violence, as in Pittsburgh or Paris, and it's already too late. Instead, we should understand the Holocaust as a cautionary tale for what happens when more common outgrowths of antisemitism go unchecked and resolve to beat those back together. As for how to do that, well, first we need to settle the biggest question about antisemitism of all. Whose fault is antisemitism?
0: Okay, so as as mentioned, we will get to the answer of that question of whose fault is anti-Semitism as part of this session. Um, but you know, we made that video uh, last year, a couple a couple of years ago, and we can see how ever relevant it is. And I would say so many of the numbers that we presented in that video are so much higher today um, because of everything that we're seeing, not just in America, but but all over the world. So what I'd love to do, you know, let's you know, it's uh, it's a Monday morning. We're all waking up for a new week. Um, I want to ask a simple question. Let's get everyone in the chat section for a second. Um, we've already spoken today about a few different pieces in the context of October 7th. We've spoken about the social media, um, the algorithm. We've, talking, we've We've spoken about, um, you know, why antisemitism still exists and, and where it's coming from. But I want to stop sharing my screen for a moment and give everybody the opportunity for a second to jump into the chat. And answer that question as, as basic a question as it can be. What is the best way to respond to anti-Semitism? So just click on the chat function at the bottom of your screen, the bottom of your Zoom, and um, you can type in a few words. You can type in an entire sentence, however much as you'd like to share. Um, that would be great. Um, we, see it, we see the answers coming in in real time. You know, i also be interested, those of you who have your camera on, just out of my own interest, um, if you were at the rally in DC last week, can you raise your hand? Okay, so I see a few of you. A few of you uh, went all the way there. That's amazing. Um, we'll get to that later. But here, let's look at some of the answers we have here. So Chris says education. Susanna says condemn it whenever it's expressed. Um, Rabbi Kaya Stern. Often build meaningful relationships with people from other backgrounds, faiths, and cultures. Great. Sarah says call it out. Um, remember the question once again is what is the best way to respond to anti-semitism what is the best way to respond to anti-semitism steve says be vocal um i'll give you guys a, a few more seconds here if you want to send in any more answers it's a big question and it's a question that we we as the jewish people have grappled with um really for centuries right um work with the adl it's a great point from michael and claudia um, another another person saying education, reach the young not to hate, to spread love and understanding. Find a source that young people find credible to educate them. That's a great point, Margie. Um, strengthen the state of Israel. Absolutely. Um, right. You know, this question is very different these days than it than it was um, let's say eighty years ago or any year before that, right? Um We live in a very different time today. We have a Jewish state. We have a strong, thank God, um, Jewish state with a strong military and a strong economy. Um, And despite, you know, political uh, battles and debates that have been going on this past year, the country is very strong. And one of the purposes of the Jewish state, one of the purposes of Zionism is to be a safe haven for the Jewish people. One of the purposes, right? Um, In fact, when we speak about the origins of modern political Zionism, there were those like Herzl who believed that um, Zionism or the establishment, the re-establishment of a Jewish state would be the solution to anti-Semitism, right? Um, he, of course, as we've seen, was wrong on that account. Um, he was right on many other accounts, but he was wrong that the state of Israel would be the solution to anti-Semitism. Or you had other Zionist thinkers like Jabotinsky who believed the opposite. He said that the state of Israel is the best response to anti-Semitism. It's the best way to fight against anti-Semitism. You know, he's got credibility in that statement too. Um, So today we live in a very Jewish world where half of world Jewry lives in the state of Israel. um, And most of the other half lives in the United States. Um, Those who don't live in the States mostly live in Canada, Iran, generally in countries that overall allow their Jews to live freely and um, have freedom that Jews have not experienced um, in really thousands of years of diaspora and exile, who so are living in a very different time where we have you know, more control over our destiny. Um, and uh, we're in a better situation than, than we've been in the past. Despite all of that, we still have an explosion of anti-Semitism, and we still need to deal with it. And these are all really great suggestions that you've recommended, um, you know, education, reaching the young, Strengthening the state of Israel, um, building relationships with, with different communities. Those are all fantastic things and all things that absolutely need to happen. Um, so, I want to address the second question of today's talk. Um, and this is one that I think we see in the news all the time. Um, and that is the question of whose fault is anti Semitism, right? People on the right blame the left, people on the left blame the right. Um, Many Christians blame Muslims, and Muslims blame Christians. This will all be repeated in the video. Um, we see today, you know, over the last month and a half, we see sort of a marriage, uh shidduch, shidduch, between um, many Islamists who are anti-Israel and many on the far left, right? P- uh, two groups that generally w- would not have so much in common. They found something common to connect on, um, and that's been, uh, you know, anti-Israel sentiment, and in many ways, extreme showings of anti-Semitism out in public, um, not behind closed doors. We've also seen that at a time like this, where you see this marriage between, um, you know, Islamists and far less, people on the far left, you also see people on the far right who have been emboldened. Just a couple of days ago in Wisconsin, you had, I'm sure many of you saw this, I see some people nodding, people walking around with Nazi flags, with swastikas, walking in in a public square. Um, So we see that at times like this, everybody's emboldened, and the anti-Semitism that comes from across the religious and political spectrum um, shows its face. So we're going to watch the next video, and again, pay close attention because I've got another question for you after. Um, This next video that Alex is going to show you is called, Whose Fault is Anti-Semitism?
2: Whose fault is anti-Semitism? This is probably the most controversial question about anti-Jewish prejudice. Conservatives blame liberals, liberals blame conservatives, Christians blame Muslims, Muslims blame Christians. So who's right? Is there a specific community that drives anti-Semitism? The answer is no. That's because anti-Semitism has always been spread by offenders across the ideological spectrum. What is the worldly religion of the Jew? Huckstering, declared the godfather of communism Karl Marx in 1843. What is his worldly God? Money. Not long after, Marx's contemporary Wilhelm Marr, the right-wing German nationalist who mainstreamed the term anti-Semitism, he was for it, declared that Jews didn't share the same sense of ethics as non-Jews because they preferred to accumulate wealth. Marx and Marr didn't agree on much, but they agreed on those self-serving, money-grubbing Jews. This anti-Semitic agreement didn't just hold among political rivals, For centuries, the Christian church persecuted Europe's Jews as Christ-killers and infidels, while Voltaire, the Enlightenment's sharpest critic of the religious establishment, repeatedly assailed Judaism, calling Jews an ignorant, stupid people. These examples are just the tip of the anti-Semitic iceberg. Throughout history, people with entirely opposite worldviews, from Nazi Germany's Adolf Hitler to the Soviet Union's Joseph Stalin, have somehow found a way to agree on one thing, Persecuting Jewish people. On the surface, this is pretty confusing, but it makes sense when you understand that anti Semitism predates our modern categories and stems from something far more fundamental the human inability to tolerate difference. Jews are the world's oldest minority that has refused to conform to the majority culture. For thousands of years, Jews have persisted in their unique practices and traditions. They were too stubbornly jewish for religions like christianity and islam that sought to convert them too religious for atheists and free thinkers like voltaire too closed off and clannish for the internationalist left like the communists of the soviet union who put jews in gulags, and too worldly and widespread for the nationalist right who slurred them as corrupt cosmopolitans undermining the state as an ever-present minority jews have been perpetually scapegoated for the majority's problems Constantly cast as untrustworthy and accused of serving their own interests at the expense of societies. In the biblical book of Esther, the villain Haman tells the king there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from all other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. This 2,000 year old expression of anti Semitism could have been written yesterday take this recent broadcast by True News, a right-wing Christian news outlet that was accredited by the Trump White House. That's the way the Jews work. They are deceivers. (laughs) They plot. They lie. They do whatever they have to do to accomplish their political agenda. Now listen to this 2015 interview with Jewish Senator Bernie Sanders by Diane Rehm on NPR, the polar opposite of True News. You'll recognize some familiar themes.
1: Senator, you have dual citizenship with
2: Israel. Well, no, I do not have dual citizenship with Israel. I'm an American. I don't know where that question came from. No, I'm an American citizen, period. Jews sought to escape their minority status by founding their own state, Israel. But now anti-Semites just accuse Jews everywhere, like Sanders, of disloyally working for Israel as part of a global conspiracy to control non-Jewish countries. These insinuations find their way from the internet into everyday interactions. Uh, Mr. Carden, um looks like a regular white guy, nice guy, whatever, but in actuality, he's a Jewish
0: white guy. And if the public was informed of that by C-SPAN, I
2: think they would take his comments differently. Because this guy is Jewish, that means that he is concerned about Israel. Eric, I want to give the congressman a a chance to respond
0: to that. I normally am pretty tolerant to people who ask questions, but I'm not to your your assumption. I, I take great offense to that. This country, our loyalty is to America. Our concerns are to America.
2: As they have throughout history, conspiracy theories about Jews undermining society have deadly consequences. In 2018, a white supremacist named Robert Bowers, who claimed Jews were scheming to replace whites with brown immigrants, massacred 11 worshippers in a Pittsburgh synagogue. In the years that followed, another white nationalist attacked a synagogue in California, while black extremists with entirely different worldviews shot up a kosher supermarket in New Jersey and stabbed religious Jews at a Hanukkah gathering in New York. The point here is not that anti-Semitism exists equally in all these communities. It's that no community is immune to anti-semitism, because no community is immune to the instinct to stigmatize difference. Nowhere is this more apparent than Europe, where Jews surveyed from Spain to Sweden report experiencing serious anti-semitism from all directions. This testimony reflects real-world bigotry. Whether it's Poland's Christian Conservative Party passing laws to repress studying the Holocaust and Polish complicity in it, or Hungary's nationalist leaders leading a state-sponsored campaign demonizing Jewish financier George Soros, blaming him for the country's problems and comparing him to Hitler, or Britain's preeminent left-wing party failing to stop pervasive anti-semitism in its ranks under leader Jeremy Corbyn, or Jews in France being subjected to countless violent attacks at the hands of Islamic extremists. As you can see, anti-semitism is the ultimate equal opportunity offender. So why does anti-semitism continue to flourish across the spectrum? The answer is simple. People only tend to police anti-Jewish bigotry when it comes from the other side, not their own. It's understandable why this happens. After all, it's much easier to condemn the prejudice of people you already despise and disagree with. It's a lot harder to speak up when the bigotry is coming from your friends and allies. But think about it. Where do you have the power to make change? Among your friends or among your enemies? in your community, or in someone else's. Yet too often, our national conversation about anti-Semitism consists of people trying to bounce anti-Semites from parties they weren't invited to. Conservatives policing progressive anti-Semitism. Progressives policing conservative anti-Semitism. And so on. You don't have to be an expert in anti-Semitism to see why this doesn't work. So how can we stop this from happening and start fighting the anti-Semites instead of each other? The secret is this. Focus on the anti-Semitic ideas expressed, not the individual expressing them. If we train ourselves to recognize anti-Jewish sentiments, rather than getting distracted by their source, we'll be much more successful at identifying and uprooting the hateful ideas across the board. But if we pick and choose which anti-Semitism to care about based on who says it, and give our own community a pass, the bigotry will continue to spread unchecked. Because the truth is, Casting anti-Jewish prejudice as a specifically left-wing problem or right-wing problem or Christian problem or Muslim problem is really just a way of saying that it's someone else's problem. The only people who win this argument over who's the bigger bigot are the anti-Semites who continue to spread their hate while their supposed opponents point fingers at each other. To truly combat anti-Semitism, we need to stop thinking of it as other people's problem and start confronting it as our problem. Okay,
0: so again, lots to unpack there. Um, the big idea, as we just saw, whose fault is anti-Semitism, we see there that an- no community is immune to it. We see it on the right, we see it on the left. We see it from different religious groups. We see it from different ethnic groups. Um, we see it in the last six weeks, um, you know, in specific areas, but we've also seen it for the last millennia from a variety of different places. So. The premise of that video is to really focus on the ideas themselves and not specifically on on the individuals themselves. Obviously, individuals that are threatening um, you know, be it you know hate crimes and violence, all of that should be condemned and and dealt with accordingly. But um but also as a general rule, we need to be aware of what these anti-Semitic ideas and, and conspiracies um and stereotypes are, because we see that. In all these different groups, these same ideas, these same conspiracy theories, come to light again and again. Right? We talk about the blood libel, um, the ancient blood libel. Um, we see that even in the last couple of weeks, we have spoke people from Hamas that are sharing on television, in actual interviews, uh, this conspiracy theory, saying that the blood libel is not a blood libel, that it exists, and you know, this is something that needs to be dealt with. But I want to show you a powerful quote. This is from uh, Yishayahu Leibowitz. He's a um, famous former, he was a famous Israeli philosopher and he says, anti-Semitism is not a Jewish problem, but a non-Jewish problem, right? It's a very fascinating quote. It seems very straightforward, but it's also very deep and profound. I wanna spend a second just to reflect on on this quote. Anti-Semitism is not a Jewish problem, the way that we so often treat it. but a non-Jewish problem. And does that change the way that we deal with anti-Semitism, the way that we address it um, if we agree with this premise, right? I think you could easily make the argument on both sides that you know we as Jews need to do what we can to deal with it, but we, we as Jews also need to deal with those who are espousing anti-Semitic ideas. So I just wanna um, ask one more question for those of you um, who can share in the chat. Based on the video that we just watched, do you agree that it's more important to focus on the anti-Semitic ideas expressed rather than the individuals expressing them. What are your thoughts on that? Go into the chat, let's see some of your comments and feel free to elaborate, whether it's yes or no, tell us why. Do you agree that it's more important to focus on the anti-Semitic ideas expressed rather than the individuals expressing them? So let us know in the chat, whether you agree or disagree, and your thoughts, let's look at some of the answers that are coming in in real time. Right. So, Susanna says, in this age of multiculturalism, it seems that the only culture not allowed is the Jewish one. Definitely that's a prevalent feeling. A hundred percent. Right. We have ideas. That's why I listen very closely exactly what the person spewing the anti Semitic rhetoric is saying. Right. It seems that most people agree that. It's the expressions of anti-Semitism, it's the ideas of anti-Semitism that we need to be focusing on. Because again, as we've spoken about today, anti-Semitism is an infectious disease, right? Um, and for millennia, whether we wear masks or not, it spreads, it spreads. And people of all backgrounds, um, unfortunately aren't infected with this disease. It's passed down, um, you know, generation to generation in, in many places and, and unfortunately, as we've seen, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Um, so, um, okay. So with that, uh, what I'd like to do is we've spoken about why is anti-Semitism still around? We've spoken about um, who, whose fault is it? We've we've spoken about some of the contemporary issues and manifestations of anti-Semitism today, both in Israel, in the U.S., and, and all over the world. Um, I just want to read out, Sarah has a great comment here, and calling out anti-Semitism it's calling out the words, the language, the falsehoods, and not about shaming the individual, which only causes entrenchment. Sarah, that's such a fantastic point because I think so often today um, we get too busy with labeling things or labeling people as anti-Semitic, um, which often is a is an, an extra turnoff. As it, I, le- I like the word you use there, entrenchment. Um, so instead of doing that, focusing on the ideas and the language um, itself. Very great. Um, okay. Wonderful. And I see that's a great question from Harvey. We're going to get to the Q and a in a second, um, but I want to share a couple of fantastic resources with each of you. I mentioned at the beginning that I work, um, at a place called untapped. Um, so on YouTube, I I shared the link in the chat earlier. Maybe Alex can send out the the links afterwards to the group, but on YouTube, we have, um, hundreds and hundreds of videos about anti-Semitism about Israel, about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, about current events in Israel, about Jewish history, about Jewish peoplehood, um, about the Holocaust. We have hundreds of videos with millions and millions of views that are accessible to all of you. You can all go to Unpack on YouTube and check out these videos. And we also have podcasts. Um, if you are podcast listeners, um, actually right now, according to the charts that we have, um, the top Jewish podcast in the world is a podcast called Unpacking Israeli History, which is one of our podcasts. Um, And we have six seasons of of this podcast. Um, If you want to take a deep dive into the major moments or the less well-known moments or the controversial moments in Israeli history and what's led us to today, um, I encourage you to check out Unpacking Israeli History. But what I want to show you specifically, because today we're speaking about anti-Semitism, is the following. I showed you two videos today. um, Why is anti-Semitism still around? And whose fault is anti-Semitism? This is part of a six-part series that you can find on YouTube. Um, under unpacked and we have other videos there called is criticizing Israel anti-semitic do Jews cause anti-semitism can Jews be anti-semitic um, is anti-semitism still relevant how does it affect the societies in which it exists so I encourage you to ch- check out um, the, the rest of those videos and a few more videos we have on the topic that you, you know you can watch for your own education enjoyment entertainment but you can also share this with family friends um, colleagues um, those of you know, we have a number of videos that are, you know, anti-Semitism themed. So, you know, we have a, a very important video about uh, the Khazar theory, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Something that comes up a lot um, these days that essentially makes the argument that today's Jews are not the real Jews. That we descend from um, a kingdom called the Kesar, uh kingdom in Europe, who converted en masse to Judaism, and we are the descendants of those. Which, of course. Has been proven both genetically, scientifically. There's no shortage of evidence that this um, theory is false. It also This theory completely disregards um, so much of world Jewry that isn't even stemming from Ashkenaz, right? Vardic Jewry, Mizrahi Jewry, Ethiopian Jewry, Yemenite Jewry, Jewry from India, um, and, and the list goes on. We, of course, also created a video um, about the classic stereotype, are Jews rich? Um, are Jews white? right? We speak about intersectionality, um, something that was mentioned in the comments a moment ago that, you know, these days we have sort of a a hierarchy of different groups based on their victimhood. Um, And although Jews are by far the religious minority most, um, that has the most religious hate crimes against it, both in America and Canada and Europe and many other places. um, Unfortunately, one of the one of the stereotypes that exists out there is that Jews are considered white people. That, of course, um, disregards the entire history of the Jewish people that, you know, in whatever country they lived in, they were not considered part of that country. It also disregards Jews who don't have white skin, which is a large percentage of world Jewry. Um, But that is a very dangerous, you know, essentially uh, worldview that puts Jews at the bottom of this intersectional totem pole and they don't get, respect that they deserve. They don't they aren't seen as a victim like other groups of um people victimized people are right there's also a video about were Jews expelled from 109 countries, which is an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that exists all over the internet. So we do a deep dive into that the origins of anti-Semitic stereotypes, are Jewish noses a real thing. Um, all of that. So we create a lot of content um, about a variety of topics relating to the Jewish people in Israel, Um, but this is some of the content that I wanted to direct you towards, specifically when it comes to um, anti-Semitism. So um, I have one more quick clip that I'm gonna show you, but I'm gonna save it for the end to give us a little bit of inspiration. So at this point, I'm going to stop sharing my screen, and this is a great opportunity. If you have any questions, um, feel free to throw those questions um, into the chat. I don't know if, if it's okay to unmute and share your question that way, whatever works for you. Um, happy to answer any questions that people may have.
1: Thank you so much, Avi. Um, yes, we'd love to open it up. If you would like to unmute and ask a question, please feel free to raise your hands and we can call on you um, to speak. And I see there are also, I think, two questions that came in in the chat already. So maybe we can do uh, those first and then open it up to others as well.
0: Excellent, sure. So let's start with Margie's question. Um, when trying to change opinions of people who hate Jews, how to get through to them? They aren't inclined to believe anything we say. Um, yeah, listen, Margie, that's a heavy-duty question, um, and you know we've seen that in the last six weeks specifically, in the sense that you know we always speak about um, horrific Holocaust denial. What we've seen in the last six weeks is we've seen a form of Holocaust denial in real time when it comes to what happened on October 7th, right? We have um, this horrible atrocity that takes place. We have video footage, we have images, we have eyewitness testimonials. We couldn't have more evidence of what took place on October 7th. Yet, within days, what is the story um, in much of the world and in the news? Were babies really beheaded or is that something they made up, right? As if to say that even if that happened, which it did, and there's plenty of evidence to show for it. What kind of question is that? Is that a question saying, were they really beheaded? Instead, they were just all burned alive, or they were all murdered in other ways. Such a ridiculous questions, right? We saw that yesterday. Um, again, not to get political, because that's not what this is really about today, but you know, it we gotta talk about what's going on in the world. Um, just yesterday, um, the Palestinian Authority sent out a document to their embassies all over the world. Um, telling them to share with their counterparts that what happened on October 7th specifically at the nova party the big dance party the dance festival that was taking place just outside um Gaza in kibbutz rain what did this document say it said that Hamas did not kill any of those uh civilians at the party that it were that it was Israeli helicopters that killed all of those people and that Israel's trying to ha- to cover, cover up this ha- what happened, right? So we see that, I, I say all of that because Margie, I just wanna emphasize what you're saying, the concept of um, that some people don't wanna believe what we have to say. I, I think I wanna go back to um, some of the suggestions that you guys offered at the beginning. Number one, um, we have to remember that despite the, the numbers and the explosion of anti-Semitism that we see, um, we have to remember that ultimately, especially today, it isn't the case that every single person hates us and everybody's out to get us, right? We we, we live within the Jewish community and we see these headlines. We see this news. We feel it. It, it affects us. It impacts us. And it makes us feel like we're so, so alone. Um, it's important to know that we're not. We're not alone. Um, there are large, large communities, non-Jewish communities that support the Jewish people. This was evident um, at the incredible rally in DC last week that had 300,000 people there, many of whom were not Jewish, who came from a variety of different backgrounds, both religious and political, who supported the Jewish people. Um, the majority of people are not spending their time thinking about their hatred for Jews or not hating Jews at all. Um, we're thinking about it um, because it affects us, but that's not the case everywhere. So I think ultimately, even though there's times where Ellen, where right, We feel that pain. We feel, especially last six weeks, so many of us feel hopeless. We need to remember that um, that isn't the case. What we need to do is we need to continue to educate those around us, whether it's family, friends, colleagues, um, whether it's sharing articles and sharing videos, posting on social media, um, supporting organizations who fight against anti-Semitism and educate others. Right. I'll I'll give you another example that will give you some hope just this past week. I was in Ottawa, Canada, speaking at um, two non-Jewish schools, um, both private schools, um, who, you know, they've had lots of anti-Semitism within their classrooms, um, within their student body. And they brought me in to speak about anti-Semitism and the conflict and all of that. And it's important to know that, you know, thank God we're in a place where leadership in general wants to fight anti-Semitism, wants to deal with this issue. They understand that in countries and societies in which anti-Semitism shows its face, as we've all seen, that is indicative of the the downfall in many ways of the societal fabric in that country. So many people know that it's not only within our community and there are many people fighting against this. Um, And, you know, it's all on us as well to continue this fight. And this is a fight for for us as individuals, for our families, for our communities and um. We can't rely on anyone else to do the fight for us. Even though there are others, we need to continue to fight and be proud of who we are, and defend who we are, and share education. And as mentioned earlier, develop relationships with people from other communities because you know, even we're we're a small number in in every country that we live in. In America, we're uh, you know two percent of the population. In Canada, one percent of the population. Um, so many people have never met Jews. They've never been exposed to Jews um they it's hard to humanize a group of people that you've never even met so it's important for us to make our voices heard and to connect with different communities and, and and let them know that we're human beings too and we're people just like them and you know we come from an ancient and incredible lineage and history and tradition and we have a lot to be proud of and we have a lot to be optimistic about and um and we need to continue to fight the fight but thank you long answer to a great short question um, but let's let's look at another one here.
1: Um, going back, I think there was a question from Harvey as well that I want to make sure we get to. Um, how have CRT, BDS, and intersectionality contributed to anti-Semitism?
0: Yeah, Harvey, that's a fantastic question. CRT, for those of you who don't know, is critical race theory, BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions, um, and intersectionality. I spoke a little bit about, um, about this a few minutes ago in the concept that intersectionality is a concept that all victimized people, you know, have something in common and they should fight together against oppression. Right. On the surface, that sounds like a great idea. That makes sense. Yes. You know, people that have been victimized should support each other and fight for human rights and, you know, fight for um support. That all makes total sense. The issue is, um, without getting too much into it, because we could spend an hour on this topic, is that as I mentioned before, there's been a hierarchy, hierarchy of victim that has essentially been built in this, um, philosophy of, of intersectionality. And due to the fact that in the Western world, Jews are seen as white people and white people are at the bottom of this totem pole of this hierarchy. Um, despite the fact that Jews are the most attacked group, the most religious hate crimes, um, in the entire country, um, They are put at the bottom. We are put at the bottom of this totem pole because we are seen as white people. Um, And so how have all of these concepts contributed to anti-Semitism? Again, I could spend hours on that topic, but immensely, immensely, um, we have seen that anti-Semitism has shown its ugly face um, through all three of those concepts that you've showcased. I think um, it doesn't mean that everybody that supports critical race theory or BDS or Um, intersectionality is someone that hates Jews, Uh, that is not necessarily the case, but we've seen that anti-Semitism has definitely showcased itself um, and manifested itself through all of those different avenues. Um, And it's something that we all need to be aware of and we need to make sure that that we, the Jewish people, it's not the victim Olympics, um, but we need to make sure that um, as the group that has the most religious hate crimes committed against it um, in the entire country, that we need to fight for ourselves and we need to defend ourselves and we can't allow these ancient and some of them even newer anti-semitic theories and stereotypes to affect the way that we're treated and the way that we're protected under law um and it's it's a fight we need to continue to to fight um so it's a great question um but uh yeah that's that's what i would say to that but i well i would just i would say i got one question uh as a direct question in the private um in the private messaging, and it, and it's about um, college students who are feeling threatened and alone right now. And I think i'll we'll end with responding to that. As we've seen on college campuses in the states and all over the world, it's a horrifying sight. I just actually spent the last two months um, in Cleveland. Um, my wife is a medical student, and she is doing rotations in Cleveland. And, you know, we were living close to Case Western University. And, you know, we'd go for a Shabbat walk walking down the street. and, The signs and posters that we would see were things that I I never thought I would see in a public sphere before. Things calling for, you know, signs calling for intifada, intifada, um, which we all know what that represents. Um, just horrific things. We know what college kids are going through right now, and it is horrifying and it is, you know, isolating. And, you know, we've seen the reports, we've seen the numbers, we've seen the videos coming out um really from all over the world of the struggle that um, Jewish university students are are going through right now. Um, And, you know, we actually just wrote an article um, last week on our our Unpacked website, which talked about the fact that many are struggling with, should I fight against anti-Semitism in my specific institution? Or should I go to another college that guarantees my safety and, and security? There's been other private colleges over the last, month and a half, that have said they would remove red tape and allow Jewish students to um, transfer to their colleges because they wouldn't allow hatred and anti-Semitism on their campuses. Um, so, you know, there's there's so much conversation out there. There's so much debate there about, um, you know, lawsuits that will be filed against different campuses that are not protecting their Jewish students, that are allowing um, rallies to take place. That within these rallies, again, not everybody, but within them, there are those calling for genocide against Jewish people. There's violence against Jewish people. Um, you know, there's lots of organizations that are fighting, fighting the good fight um, when it comes to that. But it's something we all need to be aware of. And like I said, we need to continue to fight and um, make sure that our students, much like all the other students, we talk about safe spaces all the time. We want to make sure that our students, Jewish students, feel safe as well. Um, to be who they are. Um, to have whatever political views they have, uh, the whole idea of a university is to have this marketplace of ideas and different philosophies, and you know, to be challenged ideologically and philosophically, and um and that's and that's all extremely important. So I want to end off. I know we have to run in a second. I want to end off with um one short, one minute long video um that I will show you. One thing that we've been producing every day since October 7th on unpacked social media on Instagram and TikTok are videos of positivity, videos of heroism, videos of courage, um, videos of strength. Because at a time like this where so many of us collectively feel such heaviness and such loneliness and such despair, it's important to know that there's so much positivity taking place Um, both in the Jewish world and outside of it. Last week, we saw the largest rally in Jewish history, 300,000 people um, in DC rallying um, for the Jewish people for the release of the hostages against anti-Semitism. Just yesterday in France, there were 200,000 people who came to protest against anti-Semitism, mostly non-Jewish people. There are a lot of supporters out there and we cannot forget that. And we need to know that we are not alone. Um, And I wanna show you this short clip Um, which hopefully will give all, all of us a little bit of chizuk, a little bit of strength going into the week. So let's check out this video. Are
3: you ready for a moment of strength? Let's go. Here's your daily dose of inspiration to raise your spirit. Even in the wake of the deadliest atrocity in Israel's history, the Jewish people and the state of Israel continue to live. A baby born in southern Israel following the tragic massacre at Kibbutz Beri was named Beri. Couples who needed to postpone their weddings due to being called up to reserve duty still got married on their bases. Soldiers on the front lines have participated in life cycle events from their phones, like this one who joined his son's Brit Mila from afar. <laughs> Soldiers have sang songs welcoming Shabbat to their wives. Israelis have gathered on their balconies to sing songs of unity and support, drowning out the sorrow for moments of solidarity and resolve. The Jewish people continue to live. I think
0: that, that's the important message that we'd love to end off with today, that despite these challenges, um, and rise in anti-Semitism that we need to, of course, continue to fight with all of it, with all of our power. We also need to remember that you know this is a time that since October seventh we've seen unity amongst the Jewish people and within Israel like we've never seen before. You know, religious, secular, right wing, left wing, more affiliated, less affiliated. Um, it's been incredible to see how strong Am Israel, the Jewish people, have been in this time of challenge, and we need to make sure that. We take inspiration from that and continue to bring that, um, you know, not just at difficult times, but all the time. And to remember that Am um, Israel Chai, really that we are alive and we are strong and we'll continue to fight the good fight. Um, I just want to share here, those of you who are on social media, um, feel free to check us out on Unpacked, a Jewish Unpacked on Instagram and uh, TikTok. And if you'd like to continue the conversation, if you'd like to reach out to me directly, that's my email address. Um, Alex can share out all of these details afterwards, but I want to thank all of you so much um, for joining this morning. It's a pleasure to, to be with you and to continue to inspire each other and those around us and to continue learning. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you so much, Avi. It was a pleasure to host you. Um, I can definitely send out those resources. Thank you everyone. Have a good day. Thanks
0: for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybatemidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybatemidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.